Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking with Christy Akulian, Senior Investment Strategist at BlackRock's iShares. Christy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, great to have you. So, Christy, I wanted to start off by talking about a report that you recently co-authored, very interesting report that looks ahead to 2024. I wanted to start off by asking you about interest rates, right? It was only a few months ago people were talking about how the Fed was hawkish and how rates had yet to peak. But today I looked at Fed funds futures and they're indicating that there's a 50% chance of a rate cut in March. First of all, how did things change so quickly? And secondly, I know your report says that you don't think that we're going to see rate cuts in March or in the first half of the year at all. Why do you think the market is wrong? Yeah, so that's a great place to start. I think that kind of the interest rate forecast and and expectations there sort of underpins all of our outlooks for other asset classes as well. So, um, so yeah, so I, I mean, it's a great question. Um, obviously, we have seen a pretty dramatic move just in the month of November. Um, and, you know, if we, if we even just think back to, to call it four to six weeks ago, I think all anybody could talk about was higher for longer, right? And so I, I think that there's there's been a real sea change in the way that people are thinking about, about the forward path of interest rates. So, you know, we've, we've seen a, a tremendous rally um, in, in bonds just over the last month or so. I think a lot of what, what has spurred or sparked some of that is really just a, a return to the belief of, um, of a soft landing. Right. So if you remember back in the summer, there was kind of a brief period where everybody was was really all on board with the soft landing narrative. Um, and, and then maybe we we got to the higher for longer period. And now we're kind of back to that soft landing. So I, I think that the, the data that's come in has been really encouraging. We've seen inflation um, continue to moderate at a, at a pretty um, consistent path, which I think is is great and, and encouraging to see. Um, and we've seen the labor market stay strong, but not too strong. I think that was another really important component of, of um, what the data that the Fed was watching and that we in turn were watching as well. So, you know, we, we are starting to see this setup where a soft landing is possible, or at least the odds of reaching something like that um, have increased over the last month or so. And so I think that a lot of that has led to, um, I'm not sure if we should call it euphoria in risk markets and in the equity markets in particular, um, but I, I do think that the, the setup looks a little bit better than it was previously. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of what's driving or dictating the market right now. To your, you know, you called this out and, and I'll, I'll spell it out here for us too, though, is that we don't necessarily think the market is right right here. So, you know, we're, it's it's no longer a base case that we think that we're heading into a recession, but we do think that we're heading for a period of of kind of moderating and slowing growth. Um, we certainly don't think we're going to be staying at kind of the five plus percent GDP growth that we saw last quarter. Um, and so, you know, I, I think part of that too is that we think that the Fed is going to keep interest rates um, you know, a little bit higher and for a little bit longer than markets currently anticipate. So yes, we don't expect cuts in the first half of the year. Um, and, and we think that, you know, where the market pricing is right now is maybe a little bit too much and a little bit too soon in terms of pricing in those expectations for cuts. 
And one interesting thing you wrote in the report, Christy, is that stocks have performed better in the period between when the Fed finishes hiking rates and when it cuts than during the period after it begins cutting, which is kind of counterintuitive. What does that mean tactically? Um, you know, should investors be positioning themselves relatively aggressively right now because we're kind of in that pause period? Yeah, so this is such a great point. Um, and, and it's one that I think surprises a lot of people, right, is, is you know, and, and I'll describe this a little bit. I, I know we're referencing kind of a graph in a paper that not everybody has seen or read. But what we did is we looked at the periods kind of what we so we looked at the last five hiking cycles. So going back to 1990, um, and we divided that into the six months before the last Fed hike, and then the period between the last hike and the first cut, and then the six months after. And what we actually found is, is that on average, the Fed has paused for about 10 months before making the first cut. So if we think that July was the, the last hike, um, we're about four months into that, right? So we're, you know, we're some way in, but there, there's still probably a bit more to go. And really, really interestingly is we found that both stocks and bonds really significantly outperformed cash kind of as expected during that pause period and during the period, um, the six months after. But even more interesting, I think, is exactly that point that you made that the strongest performance was during the pause period and not after the cut. And so I think that there's a, a lot of kind of conventional wisdom out there and, and what we've seen and, and sort of anecdotally heard from the clients that we're speaking to as well and investors out there is that a lot of people are just kind of sitting on the sidelines right now waiting for that first cut as being the impetus for, for a start of a new rally. And what we're cautioning is that doing so now and staying in sort of those record amount of cash that investors hold at this moment can really risk missing out on the biggest portion of the returns um, after the Fed is done hiking. And so, you know, even just, you know, looking, I, I think the difference is most stark in fixed income, but bonds have returned about twice as much on an annualized basis during the pause period, as they did in that period right after the Fed started cutting. So again, it kind of throws a lot of that conventional wisdom, a lot of the, you know, what we thought we know on its head. And so I think from a tactical perspective, the most important message that we have right now is that it's it's really important and it's really time to step out of cash. Hey, um, Christy, I want to interject yeah. for a minute here on the, you know, talking about things that, that kind of throw a wrench into conventional wisdom <laughs> is the idea of a soft landing. And the idea of the Fed cutting rates. I mean, why would the Fed need to cut rates if it's a soft landing? Wouldn't you need something a little more aggressive, like a, a hard landing or a, a maybe a little bit of a, a tougher recession? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, and I want to make really clear here, too, that, you know, we said we don't expect the Fed to cut in the first half of next year, which mm -hmm. sort of implicitly, you know, suggests that we do think that they could cut in the second half. I, I think, though, that the difference here is that you know, the Fed could cut, um, there's been this idea of calibration cuts. And I would think about this as that the, the way down may look a lot like the way up in that the Fed is going to be really data dependent. And there was sort of a hike and a pause and a hike and a pause. And I think that we could see something similar to that on the way back down. So if inflation does return back to target and the job market continues to stay strong, but not too strong. So that sort of Goldilocks scenario that we're talking about, I think it's possible that the Fed could feel comfortable to 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 cut rates from the the what they have themselves have classified as, as fairly restrictive right now towards something closer to neutral. But we certainly don't think that it's going to be a really aggressive cutting campaign or, you know, a month over month campaign or the, you know, the jumbo, cut, you know, 
cuts to, right. to offset the jumbo hikes that we saw earlier, unless we do hit a recession, right? Well, so, it, so it's exactly like it's a different path altogether. Even uh-huh. though we may still see some some cuts for next year. Let, let's go back to the roughly eight trillion dollars uh, sitting in money market <laughs> funds right now. Obviously. I don't see why, how are you going to get investors to move away from those safe yields without rate cuts, which would obviously alter those yields, right? Where, I mean, why should people move out of money market funds if, if that's what they're doing and getting close to 5%? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely tough considering that that has been the right trade for this year, right? Is the investors who were at the very short end of the curve and and even cash, you know, outperformed most fixed income, um, given how aggressively the, the Fed did hike rates this this year and even more than expected. And so I, I think that there is a risk to doing too little and a risk to, to staying in what worked this year. And I think that the there's a, a lot more upside appreciation from owning duration than investors necessarily anticipate. But again, it goes back to that point that like this is a trade that it, it pays to be early to rather than late. Um, because yeah, it may feel really comfortable earning 5% in cash right now. But as interest rates come down, obviously, you haven't locked that in for any amount of time, right? If you don't, if you're only holding cash, you have a duration of zero. And as interest rates do start to come down eventually, not that we're expecting that they're going to do so right away, um, or even as as much as the the market does next year, when interest rates come down, there is um, a lot of upside potential in fixed income, um, right? You can, you can, you're looking at potentially double digit returns in something like the ag or even something safe like treasuries if you are extending duration. And so why, you know, we think of this almost as, you know, all of the pain that you entered in fixed income in 2022 and to some extent a little lesser extent 2023 is, you know, you need to be positioned to capture the upside on the other side of it, but the only way you can do so is if you own duration. You're not, you know, cash can't rally like bonds can. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, Christy, speaking of duration, we've seen a ton of demand this year for really long duration ETFs, things like TLT. But of course, you know, for a year and a half, two years, that's been a very big loser. Uh, Though in the past month, we have seen that uh, ETF and others like it rally quite a bit. I checked TLTs up something like 10% off the bottom. Where do you stand on this part of the treasury uh, curve? Yeah, so this is this one's really interesting to us, right? And and those TLT flows and and the interest around that, like it's it's not even just in the ETF itself; it's in the options ecosystem around it. Like there's there's so much interesting stuff developing there um, from retail and institutional investors um, that I'm I'm glad you brought it up. So our preferred point at this you know at this stage and and kind of where we are right now we sort of see the sweet spot in fixed income as being the intermediate part of the curve. So we like the risk reward profile and kind of that three to seven year point. But that said, you know, we know investors aren't necessarily starting from scratch and building a new portfolio. They already have existing positions. And so we've seen TLT be used um, as a way to extend duration pretty quickly and pretty capital efficiently, right? So a little bit of TLT in a portfolio goes a long way in terms of extending duration and, and getting that average duration level up. So I think that is part of the way that we've seen a lot of investors use this is 
a quick plug, a capital efficient way. You don't need too many dollars allocated to this to increase your duration. I think that the the retail trade is certainly one too. Like I, I never anticipated, um, you know, even in the world of kind of post 2021 meme stock trading that we would see uh, the retail, that, that retail cohort of traders be interested in something um, as seemingly boring as U.S. Treasury funds. But TLT has, has really captured um, a lot of the attention in that area too. So I think that it's different investors coming at it from different perspectives. Our view though, and, and kind of, you know, part of the reason why we like that intermediate part of the curve though, is because we still do think that there are some risks at the long end. So where you get your duration matters too, right? Um, and, and if we think about things like kind of the deteriorating fiscal condition in the US and, and a variety of other factors that all kind of basically just boil down to supply and demand, who's buying and who's selling these, um, we think that the long end of the yield curve can continue to move higher. So it's not that we we don't like long duration. It's just that we think that there'll probably be better entry points in the future as the yield curve continues to normalize. And, and uh, you know, I know we wrote a little bit, too, about kind of the shape of the yield curve and um, and how that's disinverted. Um, quite a bit this year, but it still, you know, has further to go. And then just kind of the idea of term premium as well. The idea that investors demand more return to hold longer dated bonds. We've only really seen that come back to about flat. So we'd like to see that turn positive before we think that's the best time to step into long duration. Christy, I want to ask you about that inverted yield curve. I mean, what is your outlook for this? This seems to be a unusually long period for an inverted yield curve, doesn't it? It is. And, and you know, I think that if investors use kind of the old playbook and use this as their, their guiding principle for whether we were heading into a recession or not, this has been signaling that we were heading towards a recession for quite a long time. I think one of the things that, that we have really realized, and this has been a, a painful, you know, lesson for I think a lot of investors, is that sometimes, you know, in, in this sort of new regime that we think that we're in, the old playbook might not work as well. So I, I still think it's a really, really important indicator and it's something that investors should be paying attention to. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily saying that we have to be heading into a recession. I think there's different ways that that could play out. But I do think that it's saying to us, at least at the levels where it has disinverted as much as it has, that now is a really good time to move from the front end and start to extend out. You're not giving up as much yield now as you are, you know, to extend duration as you would have call it six months ago. So it's still very useful from that perspective. Christy, speaking of the old playbook, for about 15 years after the financial crisis, investors saw extremely low interest rates, zero on the Fed funds rate, one, two, max 3% in treasury bonds. You know, you talked about the yield curve normalizing. You know, even if we get the Fed funds rate eventually down to two and a half percent, three percent. Doesn't that mean that long-term rates could still be, you know, 4%? Is, is that what we're going to see going forward, a different interest rate paradigm where long-term rates are higher than they were over the previous 15 years? Yeah, I, I, the short answer to that is is yes. You know, we don't think we're headed back to the zero interest rate world um, that those, those days feel behind us. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, that picture that you kind of just painted there, I think that feels relatively likely to us. So ways that we think that the yield curve can continue to disinvert and return to a normal upward sloping shape is we do think that the long term, the long end can move a little bit higher. We've seen, you know, it was higher, you know, touched 5% or so um, 
earlier this fall and has come back down since then in, in terms of the 10-year. But we, we do think the long end can move a little bit higher. And obviously, as the Fed starts to normalize policy and, and bring us out of restrictive territory, we expect the front end to, to fall a bit too. So I, I do think that investors should be thinking about what works in a portfolio in a structurally higher interest rate environment, not just a temporarily longer one. And and that has implications. I know we've talked a lot about fixed income, but that has implications in equities too. And so as we're we're looking at the types of companies and you know the parts of the market, whether we're thinking from factors or sectors lens that can do well, I think that's a really important assumption that we've built in is if interest rates stay higher, what companies are still viable, right? And, and I think that leads us to our really strong preference that, you know, it's not new. We've had this for quite a while for, for going on a year now that we've really like quality and the quality factors. So something like QUAL um, in equities. And we, you know, we, we sat down and we debated this a whole bunch as we were writing our, our 2024 outlook of, you know, what is, what's going to take equity leadership from here and how, you know, what can continue to drive the market higher. We still feel really comfortable staying in quality right now because, you know, if you look back on 2023, quality has had really strong performance. It's outperformed the broader market. And, and I think that importantly, we think that the reasons why that did so are going to continue and kind of at least for the first half of the year. So quality, as we think about it, um, it, it's, you know, it's profitability, it's consistency of earnings, and then it's um, balance sheet strength and and, uh, the amount of leverage that a company needs to take. And it was that last factor, the leverage component in particular, that was really, really rewarded, unsurprisingly, when interest rates are high, um, you want companies that don't need to borrow as much. And so we think that that can continue um, into next year. So we, we feel really confident in that quality call still. Let me shift over to something else you wrote about in your report, um, mortgage-backed securities. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're, you know, I, I think that overarching theme throughout the whole report and, and bo- you know, all asset classes is that we like high quality. But, you know, we do see opportunities to add a little bit of incremental yield relative to treasuries. And mortgages have have been pretty beaten up recently. We call real estate kind of a lovable laggard in the recent environment. Um, But I I think our our main reason for liking that now is really just valuations. So the spread between the yield you get in mortgages, and I'm talking about agency-backed mortgages, so still very, very high credit quality, um, relative to U.S. treasuries is a lot more. So a higher yield um, in mortgages relative to treasuries than is the historical norm. So another way of just saying that that mortgages do look a little bit cheap, but are still high in credit quality. So we like that you can earn a little bit of incremental yield there. Okay, great. You also talked about buffered ETFs. I, I, I love these things. I know they're incredibly popular. They gained a lot of popularity over the past couple of years. I think as maybe financial advisors saw a need to get more defensive, but uh, what's your What's your thinking on that for uh, for our audience, for financial advisors and investors in general? Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is this one is newer for us in terms of this is the first time we have have explicitly recommended this in one of our outlooks, um, and and it's exactly for a lot of those reasons that that you just touched on and and what we've been talking about is that you know we think that 2024 is going you know it can be a positive year a positive year for equities in particular, but you know, modestly so. And and we think that there's a, a lot of cross currents um, in the market and, and the macro environment, we just expect to be more challenging. So, you know, that idea of interest rates st- staying higher, 
than investors currently expect. Growth not necessarily turning negative, but slowing. Um, and so those can those can really be challenges for for equity performance. So in this environment, you know, I, I you know we see you know and and we believe that it it makes a lot of sense to be able to maybe trade away a little bit of upside potential in exchange for a more definitive outcome and a, and sort of more definitive downside protection. And so I think these buffered ETFs are great. We've we've seen investors using them in a lot of different ways. And so I, I kind of think of this as is almost a corollary to like the quality trade, right? So one way to bring risk down in your portfolio a little bit is to go up in quality. And, and that's that's a, a more traditional way, one that we've been talking about for a while. I think kind of a, a newer way in for investors who who do want more certainty of outcome. I think that those buffered ETFs can, can be a really great option. You know, where we've kind of highlighted the opportunity is IVVM, which is the moderate buffer. Um, there's also deep buffers as well. So you can kind of choose what you feel comfortable with in terms of the upside downside capture, and you can find a product that, that suits that. Interesting stuff. And Christy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you talked about covered call ETFs in your report. I've heard of uh, some investors using those as kind of a defensive play. What's your take on those? Yeah, definitely. We we didn't touch on them this time, um, and and we we certainly do have those types of products. Um, I, we think of them as kind of a, an a way to add incremental yield as well. Um, so particularly in fixed income, I know we've seen a lot of flows um, and activity, and and it goes. I, I think that it it goes to this bigger point, and it's a really interesting change that we've seen in kind of the ETF ecosystem more broadly. Is that investors are using the product and using ETFs in new and different ways, right? So. It's, it's not just the traditional kind of buy and hold, but I, I think that invest, investors are kind of embracing a little bit more exotic strategies, if you will, and a little bit more outcome-oriented strategies, um, and also active strategies within the ETF wrapper, which feels like a, a really cool new development, um, just in terms of the way that people think about innovating within the product and how that can, can really help them meet their financial goals. Absolutely. So, Christy, you've talked about quality. You've talked about buffer ETFs. You've talked about covered call ETFs. Before I let you go, though, I want to ask you about the broader stock market. There's been a lot of talk this year about how the Magnificent Seven are holding the S&P 500 up. Do you think the rally is going to broaden out in 2024? And regardless, what do you think that means for the index? Yeah, so it's a great, yeah, really great question. I think yes, and we've already seen some of that, right? So the the concentration levels and the narrowness of the the market rally were were sort of the worst or the most narrow in the summer. And we've continued to see the the rally broaden from there. I think that it can continue to do so. And one of the areas that we wrote about and talked about too, kind of that go back to that idea of lovable laggards, is that we do think that there can be a catch-up trade. Um, we just don't necessarily you know, feel, feel comfortable saying that that's going to happen right away. So, you know, our view is, is that kind of for the next three to six-ish months, we think that, you know, a lot of what has powered the market so far, and, and I'll expand that beyond just the Magnificent Seven, but include things like large cap growth. I think that that can continue. We don't necessarily see the, the makings of a large rotation in equity leadership just yet. 
but I do think that that can and will come later. And so that's where we start to see opportunities in really underowned and unloved asset classes and parts of the market, like small caps and like value. So I think those things will have will have their time. Um, we aren't just we just aren't calling for it quite yet. Oh, fantastic. Chrissy, we're going to have to leave it there. You gave us a ton of great insight today. Thanks so much for your time. Of course. Thanks again for having me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.